Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Anne's Bloom. So we are looking at the novel Persuasion this week, and there's not really much scene to set up for you all since we're at the very beginning of the novel where we get this description of Anne. A few years before, Anne Elliot had been a very pretty girl, but her bloom had vanished early. And as even in its height, her father had found little to admire in her. So totally different were her delicate features and mild dark eyes from his own. There could be nothing in them now that she was faded and thin to excite his esteem. He had never indulged much hope. He had now none of ever reading her name in any other page of his favorite work. Wow, no parent awards for him. None. Oh, Sir Walter, you are (laughs) the worst. So this episode is all about unpacking the term bloom. And bloom, as it is used in Persuasion, seems like this nebulous thing that combines concepts of beauty, youthfulness, and social approval. In her article, Dandies, Beauties, and the Issue of Good Looks in Persuasion, Jane Sturrock writes that, as a 15-year-old reading the novel for the first time, quote, I was struck with and slightly perplexed by the novel's insistence on this word, which I had never before met in quite the sense in which Austen uses it here. What was Bloom? Could it be bought at the cosmetics counter? It seems like a very legitimate question, right? Yeah, I would like absolutely. to invest in this. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, I don't think Bloom is something that you can get at Sephora. But perhaps the most obvious definition of Bloom here is not cosmetic, but rather horticultural. So when a flower is blossoming or in its actual state of flowering, that's that's what this bloom concept is referring to. That definition is then turned into a metaphorical state in humans, most particularly for young women. And this is used to describe a time of youth and freshness and potential. So culturally, we have inherited this language, and it creates parallels between flowers and young women, and that often goes unexamined. But really, it does have some really important roots coming from the 18th century. According to Amy King, who wrote an entire book on this concept titled Bloom, the Botanical Vernacular in the English Novel, quote, conceptions of girlhood, maturation, and the social dispositions of marriage are buttressed by a botanical language strong and pervasive enough to uphold them, a language coming out of a wholesale cultural interest in the floral and dates from the 18th century taxonomies of Carl Linnaeus. So here is some context on Linnaeus. He is credited with standardizing binomial nomenclature, which is the scientific system of naming plants and animals by genus and then species. His writings are also problematic, as Isabelle Charmontier of the Linnaean Society states, quote, one of the origins of scientific racism can be traced to Linnaeus's work on the classification of man, which had devastating and far-reaching consequences for humanity. 
The reason why we will be referencing Linnaeus in this episode is because his work in botany and the connection to Bloom was prominent during this time period. But we want to acknowledge up front that there are serious issues with a lot of his writing. Absolutely. So he rose to prominence with his publication of works like Systema Natura in 1735 and Philosophia Botanica in 1751, in which he describes the reproductive process of flowers as a specifically sexual system. Prior to Linnaeus' publication, flowers were culturally symbolic of the pastoral and, as King puts it, quote, associated flowers with innocence and girls. It was more of a broad and abstract metaphor between young women and flowers. After Linnaeus's publications, there is a significant shift in that abstraction, and Bloom becomes more overtly connected to sexuality and reproduction. For example, Stefan Mueller-Will writes in the article, The Love of Plants, Linnaeus taught botany as a, quote, sexual system of plants, referring to flowers as beds and stamina and pistols as husbands and wives. Indeed, the sexual system comprised a veritable catalog of 18th century sexuality. Around this time, there was also a horticultural boom in England with people transporting plants from around the world. So this is obviously a manifestation of the global explorations and colonial projects that were happening in Europe. But we have this really large influx of horticulture, botany, flora coming to England for cataloging and just it, it's very omnipresent. People are very into this as a kind of a popular science. So simultaneously, there's a revolution in the way that horticulture filters into the cultural idioms. King explains that the end result is that people have a new vocabulary for how to talk botany, both literally and metaphorically. She writes, largely because of the simplicity of Linnaeus's Methodist propria, or sexual system of plant classification, botany became a widely practiced and vernacularized science from the 1770s through the early 19th century and beyond. So it's, it's filtering in all over the place. And King goes on to explain how these factors become part of the way people discuss young women specifically, as this coded language of a polite metaphor for a woman who is of marriageable age, while also implying that there are some explicit sexual connections underneath. So King writes, The cultural work of Bloom, as it comes from Linnaeus, consists of the productive conflation of social, physical, and affective factors. It is capable of expressing sexual maturation and availability, while nonetheless fitting securely within the decorous contours of classical British narration, both explicitly, as it is in Linnaean systemics, and safely implicit, Bloom is a mediating figure par excellence, a figure that can traverse the range from innocent to provocative. So this is all to say that, you know, you can use this, these, this metaphorical language in a way that kind of plays both sides of that fence. And that brings us back to Austen and how Bloom becomes part of her vocabulary to describe Anne Elliot. In her preface to the Oxford World's Classics edition of Persuasion, Deidre Lynch explains, Since botany was now the story of how maturation 
led females along a foreordained path to marriage and maternity. The language of Bloom also allowed novelists to locate those sexual associations firmly within the framework of a social institution. So it's like, ooh, flowers equal, she should be getting married. You know, there's this this very like concrete connection that's being underpinned there. Yeah. So when we apply this framework to persuasion, for example, the concept of Bloom tells us a lot about the protagonist. So King articulates this particularly well when she writes, quote, simply put, the lack of Bloom is a lack of a marriage plot. Anne's early loss of Bloom was directly related to the early loss of her suitor, Captain Wentworth. So no Bloom, no marriage plot. Lynch also puts this really succinctly when she explains that Anne's loss of Bloom, quote, in the period's idiom, equals her loss of sex appeal. You know, if you if you aren't blooming, then, you know, hop right on that shelf. Mm-hmm. But there is some additional interesting references to Bloom. They're not exclusive to Anne Elliot, which I think is something worth exploring a little bit further. So Anne's loss of Bloom is obviously the most overt reference, and that's very early in the, in the novel as we read. But Sir Walter thinks of himself and Elizabeth, quote, as blooming as ever amidst the wreck of the good looks of everybody else. I'm just picturing like a bloomin' onion appetizer, and it's like Sir Walter's <laughs> face in the middle, and he's talking. <laughs> and he's like, I am gorgeous, and yes. you all can't measure up, right? Yes. Just a blooming onion with a face. That is what I'm picturing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, there's, and just the fact that he's so conceited that he's like, he and his favorite daughter are looking smoking hot, and everybody else has a shipwreck of good looks. It's like, oh, my word. The man has zero kind of scale on his pride here. So that's how that's how Sir, Sir Walter thinks of Bloom. First of all, condemning the fact that Anne doesn't have any and that, and that he and Elizabeth are still looking great. And then we also do get a reference of Bloom in reference to Mary. And her Bloom is mentioned specifically as something that has, it's in the past. She's now married. She has kids. She doesn't have the Bloom anymore. The Bloom's been used up. Which again, is so flattering. We love this. <laughs> So each of these references is essentially an acknowledgement of whether the individual is marriageable or not. So even the Sir Walter reference is actually a reference to this idea of like he is available on the marriage market. And I think that's a really interesting way that Austin particularly is using it in this novel. Some people have read these references, specifically those to Sir Walter and Elizabeth, as indicating that their bloom is frozen or frigid. So they don't actually care about anyone else. And Bloom is all they've got. You're almost picturing like a like a crystal flower. Yeah. So I do actually kind of like that idea of like frigid or frozen Bloom in those particular characters. And it is also worth pointing out that these references to the Elliots are coming largely from the free indirect discourse that Austen uses so masterfully. So the information is coming sometimes from Sir Walter's perspective, which, you know, as the passage that we read earlier is clearly indicating And so it's always very skewed, like the fact that Sir Walter is describing himself as blooming. Again, his worldview is something we should always be suspicious about. I mean, I guess points to him for having self-confidence, you know. (laughs) But there is too much of a good thing. And he's definitely exceeded that many years ago. If only I could 
have half the confidence of a Sir Walter when I roll out of bed in the morning. You only need like a quarter of it, honestly, to have like the best day ever. Like a distilled drop. (laughs) So in a slightly different way, Anne's bloom also comes into contrast when Wentworth comes back on the scene. Anne observes, the years which had destroyed her youth and bloom had only given him a more glowing, manly, open look, in no respect lessening his personal advantages. She had seen the same Frederick Wentworth. He's basically stayed smoking hot these past eight years, getting even more attractive and manly, and she's like, I'm all withered away. Oh, how dare he be that good looking when he comes back? It also very much feeds into the cultural narrative that was the case during this time, absolutely, and is still the case today, right? Which is that men are seen as getting more attractive the older that they get, and that a woman's like attractiveness sort of declines with age. Yes. Yeah, that, that there is definitely that very overt double standard for appearances and aging for, for men and women. And it's hugely visible in this, you know, again, with Sir Walter being like, smoking hot in my 50s, looking great. Whereas Anne, immediately after Wentworth leaves, and he's like, mm, it's kind of over for you. Right. Well, a man who looks older, it sort of culturally conveys experience, perhaps like professional growth, i.e. more money, like all, all of these yeah. things. Yeah. Whereas a, with a woman, it's like sort of, and especially during this time period, like, right? It's a decline in fertility, not going to be able to give me the air and the spare. Which is perceived as like the primary function of women in this period. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, when when Wentworth comes back and he's looking incredibly handsome still, it's it's one that like even Anne is like, oh, he's looking sort of windswept and there's always like a fan kind of like lightly blowing behind him, you know, just like his <laughs> hair is always gently tousled. Yes. And what's kind of also interesting, too, is obviously when Wentworth comes back and Anne is like, he still looks incredible. He isn't so generous um, and he's a bit bitter. He's a bit petty. And he tells Anne's relations that she's really altered a lot since he saw her last. I mean, as if he didn't know that was going to get back to her. Yeah. Like, he's, he's telling her, like, very chatty, near relations while he's visiting their house. Like, it's not a good moment for Wentworth when he does this. But there's something about Anne and Wentworth's proximity. And this is, this is what I think is interesting in the novel, that there's something about the fact that Anne and Wentworth become, they come into close proximity to each other especially when they're at Lyme. And something about that makes Anne come into her own quite a bit more, and it it forces Wentworth to see her more clearly. So at Lyme, we even get that scene where Anne is overtly in bloom again. It's very directly stated. So this is from the novel. When they came to the steps leading upwards from the beach, a gentleman at the same moment preparing to come down politely drew back and stopped to give them way. They ascended and passed him, and as they passed, Anne's face caught his eye, and he looked at her with a degree of earnest admiration, which she could not be insensible of. She was looking remarkably well, her very regular, very pretty features having the bloom and freshness of youth restored by the fine wind which had been blowing on her complexion, and by the animation of eye which it had also produced. It was evident that the gentleman, completely a gentleman in manner, admired her exceedingly. Captain Wentworth looked round at her instantly in a way which showed his noticing of it. He gave her a momentary glance, 
a glance of brightness, which seemed to say, that man is struck with you. And even I, at this moment, see something like Anne Elliot again. I do love even that, like, that man is struck with you. And even I, he's like, even I, who earlier <laughs> told your relations that you were so altered that I should not have known you again. Yeah, he's kind of, he's kind of having to, like, eat his own words here. Where he's like, oh, yeah, um, I see you, Anne. Right. And it's and it is very interesting the way that that is phrased. I agree completely. One of the things that I think is particularly interesting about the fact that Austin uses Bloom very overtly in this scene is that it basically tells us that Bloom seems like something we can recover, which didn't seem like that was possible before. (laughs) Earlier in the novel, it was vanished. It was destroyed. We get some like pretty descriptive language about how this is like irrecoverable earlier on. But it's back, baby. (laughs) Something about the scene is has brought it back. And so King has a few ideas about why it returns. This is from her work. When the suitor returns, so does the 27-year-old Anne's bloom, suggesting that bloom is not merely a physical fact or a fact of youthful physiology, but a sign of social process working according to form. Yet, crucially, Bloom keeps its physical meanings as well. Her reblooming is not only novelistic shorthand for a renewed marriage plot, but a physical fact. Anne does regain her signs of Bloom in physical proximity to Captain Wentworth, which in turn re-excites his interest in her. So marriage plot back on. So things are starting to happen again here for Wentworth and Anne, despite insistence that they are worse than strangers, for they could never become acquainted. It was a perpetual estrangement. So, you know, they've had a minute to really get to reassess each other. And Wentworth actually sees and values Anne, despite his hurt and petty statements, even before Louisa falls on the cob. And at the very least, Wentworth and Mr. Elliot see Anne as attractive in the scene. So she's kind of seen as like, a going concern again, right? Yeah. Oh, you are a viable entity once more. Yeah. Well, and, and the rest of the novel seems to reinforce that Anne is more attractive than she had been before. So there is that physical manifestation, like, like, oh, she's she's pretty. Um, her looks are observed by multiple people. So we get Mrs. Smith at one point saying, oh, she's she's looking really lovely. We have an anonymous woman in Mullins that's like, oh, she's very pretty. And, you know, Wentworth is hearing this being like, I know this. So I think we're meant to understand that Anne has really changed in the way that she's perceived. Something about Anne intrinsically has changed. And so people are now perceiving her as more attractive, even though she's obviously been there and this person the whole time. Right. Hello, I'm still here. Same person. Thank you. Yeah. So in her article, Past the Bloom, Aging and Beauty and the Novels of Jane Austen, Stephanie Edelman writes, In Persuasion... Austin focuses on Anne's aging and loss of bloom, not to claim that her age defines her, but to show that societal perceptions of female aging have marginalized Anne. Ooh, I love that. We've been joking about it a lot, but like all this this whole idea of your bloom and sort of like how that relates to your fecundity. Yeah. And that that is also intrinsically like connected to your worth, which is obviously bananas. Yeah. Once we put aside those social perceptions, 
and get back to the actual person and personal interactions between Anne and those that value her, that's when we're starting to see that shift. Yeah. And again, I think it is it's important to be like, OK, it's not just, you know, again, Anne has been there and has had this value the whole time. But it's just that she's been around people that actually do see and value her. That It actually comes out more. It's like, isn't that an interesting phenomenon? Seems like we should maybe be learning something from that. I mean, she could be like a ravishing beauty and Sir Walter probably still wouldn't pay any attention to her unless she was suddenly getting attention from like a duke or something. And then he'd yeah. be like, now you are my favorite daughter. Yeah. And so his his fickleness is actually it's it's very much so on him. And so this this I love that Edelman is very overt about calling out that it's a societal problem and it's not a problem with Anne. Um, and Edelman continues and points out that Anne quote should be seen as one of Austen's attempts to explore and validate a wide range of female experiences, and as Austen's quiet admonition against restricting the joys of life only to the very young. Because even at twenty seven. Life is not over for you. (laughs) There's hope. There's hope after 27, basically. I'm over here just like, 27 was so long ago for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I think that there's this beautiful little moment. Yeah. Where where Edelman's like, yeah, this is Austin is even making it pretty obvious that like this whole age range of when you're viable is pretty ridiculous. And there's definitely this there is value to you as a human being. Like you are your bloom or without bloom or whatever. It doesn't define the value that Anne and Elliot has. So I know I've talked about this before, but I do have to mention the 95 adaptation of Persuasion and the way that this concept of bloom is treated in the film. So the production purposely didn't use makeup on the actors and they used as much natural lighting as possible. So the result is that Amanda Root who plays Anne, has to convey all of this like loss of bloom and regaining of bloom without relying on exterior things to make her look younger or prettier or things like that, which I kind of, I absolutely love that actually as a concept. So instead, it's just brilliant acting and pining. Let's, you know. (laughs) Oh, the pining. It's so much pining. And she just gets more animated and pulled more out of like literal shadows of the production. So that by the time she's at Lyme, we do get the scene where Wentworth notices her in a way that feels really natural. She's more animated. She's in the light. And so both Amanda Root and Kieran Hines play this beautifully. And he gets that kind of grin on his face after he sees Mr. Elliot noticing her on the cob. And it's just obviously <laughs> this moment where he's like, good for her. She is looking good. Like it's a <laughs> smile. And I kind of love that. Yeah. Well, I would definitely encourage our listeners, if you haven't already listened to our episode on Gallon's Lotion with Dr. June O, oh, you should definitely check that out, sort of mm-hmm. in conjunction with this episode. Yeah, because Sir Walter thinks her bloom is coming back because of Gowland. Mm-hmm. He has the Sephora solution in hand, <laughs> so. He does. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin. And on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And we've gotten a little bit behind on sharing listener reviews on Apple Podcasts, but we seriously always, always, always appreciate it. Yes. So we wanted to share this review from listener 
Mindful Education, who says, Love this all the way down to my flannel waistcoat. This podcast is engaging, witty, and a ton of fun. It's all the things you never knew you needed to know about Jane Austen's world. If I go on, I may break into a romantic expostulation a la Fallen Leaves. So I will just say five stars is at least two stars too few, which is so, so nice. so delightful. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be talking about Darcy's first proposal with Meredith Emmons. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.